Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. Hello, I'm Connor Falkland and this is Driving Life. In this episode, I chat to the fascinating, charming and insightful Terry Prone. A household name since her early teens, she's just published her new memoir, Caution to the Wind. An account of her early years becoming one of Ireland's new young voices, her wonderful but deeply controversial marriage to Tom Savage, a priest in the Ireland of the 1970s, and on through their later successes and her own extraordinary career. Before we get going, I'd like to take a moment to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Doro Mobile Phones, Expressway Buses and Travel Department. Three great companies in very different areas. They're very good to support us, so thank you very much. Don't forget to check out earlier episodes and other chats. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. So now, let's go and meet Terry. Hello, Terry. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, Here is the communications clinic and the thriving business that you've been involved in running for donkey's years. We'll talk all about that. Um, And and currently still very much a live business. Uh, And the chairman of a business that not only survived the pandemic, but had arguably its best years ever, the years of the pandemic and the years directly afterwards. So all of that is said with fingers crossed that this good luck yeah. continues. Yeah, well, it's not just luck, Terry. And, and I know the company, well, I've been in, in and out of here many times, and it feels like a young company, just the people in it and the energy in the place. Um, and yes, to state the obvious, Terry Prone goes back a long way, back a long way. Um, so you've published a book, uh, Caution to the Wind, um, which we'll talk about. I mean, I, I hear the voice of the young Terry in it, and it's a, <laughs> it's a great story. But listen, it's not your first book. Yeah, how many books have you written now? It's, it's, I think I did. Connor, I tried to count them, but I think this is the 30th. 30th. Um, the, the list of ones that's in Caution to the Wind that says also by um, is incomplete because some of the 30 that I did were secret ghost written jobs. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've been writing, you've been prodigiously writing since early childhood. I mean, Caution to the Wind uh, tells us a fair bit about your early childhood and, and um, stuff that I didn't know or, or that I vaguely knew. Um, so tell us a bit about where you came from. You grew up in, in Clontarf in North Dublin in, in nice surroundings, in a, in a nice family. Um, <laughs> well, do you know... If you, you mean as opposed to a serial killer family? Well, yeah, or, or as, as opposed to a family that you know genuinely faced poverty or whatever. You, you, you guys were doing better than most, I think. You lived in the Dublin at the time, but... I think that there was an upward aspirational thing in my family. My father was a clerk in the Dublin Gas Company and he insisted on staying a clerk in the Dublin Gas Company even when they tried to promote him because he was such a mad trade unionist. You can tell that my mother didn't approve of this. She would have liked to have had him as a manager with a manager's pay. And therefore, one of the things that I found when I was researching Caution to the Wind was a a set of books kept by my mother and father, where my mother had to, well, did account 
for every penny, every shilling, yeah. every pound that you spent on anything. So although they were in reasonably comfortable uh, situation in that they weren't poor, yeah. they sure as hell weren't rich. And my mother's extra skills in making clothes, making yeah. lampshades, knitting, all of that, contributed in a way that was typical of the Ireland of the 50s. Yeah, and you know, reading it, there's a couple of things that struck me. Your father was a passionate lefty. I mean, he was a trade unionist, he was an intellectual lefty. He was friends with uh, um, James Kelly, uh, the author of Strumpet City. Um, and, and uh, you know, part of that uh, Irish national conversation at the time. Um, and yet your family were also very committed Catholics. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe my family was a little different, but, but the influence of the Catholic Church and the respect for priests and priesthood, of course, that becomes very relevant later in your life. Um, and then your mother was a woman who was clearly a strong woman. She's, to me, seemed really passionate about your education and, um, uh, as you say, the love of books. You were writing, winning art competitions, entering drama competitions, all that sort of stuff as a young child. So in that sense, a fantastically nurturing um, intellectual household. Yes. And uh, my father, my father was impossible in many ways. One of the ways that he was impossible was that having been a seminarian, he had learned this thing of the devil's advocate, where if somebody says the sky is blue, you automatically say, but is it really? Uh, and so every mealtime in our house was a pitched battle, a debate, an argument, particularly on a Sunday morning when we'd come back from Mass and there would be high-level criticism of everything that the poor priest had said in his sermon. Because the priest, no doubt in his sermon, sermon <coughs> would have roundly condemned communism in all yes. its forms, uh, godless heathens that they were. Um, and then there was your father sort of out uh, defending Kelly after he visited the Soviet Union. That was a friendship that was, was exemplary. Uh, James Plunkett Kelly, the writer of Strumpet City, went to Moscow at a time when nobody from Ireland, particularly mm -hmm. nobody Catholic, would visit Moscow. Yeah. And he was roundly condemned from the pulpit and from almost everywhere else. And my father wrote a letter to one of the big Catholic newspapers at yeah. the time defending him. That took enormous courage. It was strategically unwise, except that, as my mother pointed out, the Dublin Gas Company was in fact owned and run at the time by Protestants who didn't give much of a sugar about my father's religious views. But he was a marvellous contradiction in that he served Mass every morning in the local French Sisters of Charity convent and yet he would have believed that, for example, the Labour Party were fellow travellers of capitalism and he would he have... He was much thought, further to the left than Yes, that. yeah. Yeah, um, extraordinarily dynamic, and, and yet I say it feels wonderful and healthy. And you and your siblings, uh, you know, you're you're uh, achieving very well in school. Um, you know, let's be frank about it. You were obviously very smart kids, and you were literally winning essay competitions and art competitions, and and getting yourself noticed in as a youngster, precocious youngster in debates and conversations. And um, it's all in the book. But you wound up uh, on RTE TV uh, presenting uh, or on a panel of teen, teen talk 
um, extraordinary place for, for a young girl to wind up. And you sort of were in the public eye ever since, ever since. Um, how, how did it, how did that, you know, suddenly come about, Terry? How did you get from I I was on Teen Talk, which was a programme presented by uh, Bunny Carr. Yeah. And I had been told by the nun who sent me, Sister Nunciata, that I was to ask a question because it was one of these situations where there's a panel of adults, audience of teenagers, and I was to ask a question and get noticed. Mm. I shouldn't have been there at all because you were supposed to be 16, I was 13. I asked a question, created a row. The audience of teenagers and mainly undergraduates thought I was the scum of the earth and we had a bloody fine fight the whole program. I thought the whole program had, you know, had about half an hour left when in fact it was over. And I'm thinking, oh God, school tomorrow is going to be difficult. And as I was going out, do you know the the big round door that circles in the television block in RTE? I was just about to enter that when somebody took my elbow and pulled me back. And this man with glasses said to me, excuse me, Terry, um, I'm Dennis O'Grady. I produce Teen Talk. um, And we've never had a, a teenager on the panel but I was wondering if you'd like to be on the panel next week. And I looked at him and said, but but why? I mean, all I did was create a row. And he said, yes. And I realized, oh, you didn't have to be beautiful or incredibly knowledgeable for television. All you had to do was contribute to the emotional temperature. Yeah. And so from then on, Within months, I was on The Late Late Show, and my mother was the most ruthless, excellent coach because Mm. she would, you know, we'd look at a particular topic and, well, what did I think of it? And I'd say something, and my mother would say, that's the obvious. (laughs) If they need the obvious, why do they need you? And I had to go away and think of something that wasn't obvious, that was a bit more exciting. And it was a great learning curve. Well, you know, two things. One is you had an intuitive understanding of the medium and of communication from a very, very early age. And it's funny the words you use because I've heard you described as a ruthless and highly effective coach. Um, And you can picture the scene because you wound up, of course, later in life professionally advising um, governments uh, on getting communications right. And, you know, have we learned something over the last 30 years, the the crucial importance of getting communications right? Um, So there you are in the public eye as a youngster. Um, And there's lots and lots we could go into in, in... you know, rich, rich stories where uh, your involvement in the Abbey Theatre, for example, and, uh, you know, all of the names that people would know from the past, from, you know, Michal MacLeamore on through to Maureen Potter and the, the uh, glitterati of, of the Dublin of the time. You were definitely part of that. Um, uh, what was the Dublin social scene like? That I'm remembering some stories from you know, kind of my parents' era. Uh, what was the Dublin social scene like as a, as a youngster then in the, what, 1970s we're getting on towards now? Well, I kind of missed out on a lot of that because although I was in the Abbey and although I was performing and although I was well-known from radio and television, yeah. didn't have that much of a social life. I know, for example, from 
just reading at the time and listening at the time, that this was the era of free love, that this was the era of contraception everywhere. Wasn't much free love where I was. Nope, I had one boyfriend, lovely boyfriend, we don't need to give his name, but until I fell hook, line and sinker for Tom Savage, I really didn't have much of a social life. And the other thing was that when, after I was married to Tom Savage, an incident happened that kind of sums it all up. We were going to some party or dinner, whatever, and I had put on makeup and clothes and I was sort of stamping around the house because I didn't want to go. And I suddenly noticed Tom leaning up against a wall in the hall and kind of quietly sniggering. He didn't have a loud laugh. And I said, what's so funny? And he said, Tess, there's no rule says we have to go. We can actually not go and nothing bad will happen. And I stood there and I realised he's right. And from then on, I never went anywhere. I never went to parties, receptions, dinners, nothing. If he wanted to go for any particular reason, he would either go on his own, which he did frequently, mm. or sometimes he would escort Moira Gagan Quinn because Moira's husband was down in the west of Ireland, so she didn't have somebody to okay. So that worked out beautifully. Do you know, the, your story with Tom is a remarkable uh, love story. It, it is in the book. Uh, and and you, you have a remarkable way of writing. You're not, it's not like you're not telling the love story, but, you know, the... The, the, the nuggets are dropping into us, and as I say, you can hear your voice as you're, as you're telling. But it is an extraordinary story that I partially knew, um, because Tom's backstory, of course, uh, Tom is in the priesthood, um, and you're young people, and uh, Tom is a young priest, very popular young priest, um, and, you know, the dynamic in Ireland at the time, um, you know, if, if, if a, a young man went into the priesthood, it was an enormous source of pride to his family, his community, um, and then a love story comes along and, and ruins it. Um, it was a scandal, uh, Terry, at the time. It was, uh, you know, you, you gloss over it in the book in a sense, although you tell it candidly, um, but it was a huge story at the time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And as you say, it was a scandal. Now, the truth behind the scandal was that Tom Savage, Father Tom Savage, mm. um, had decided to leave the priesthood before he ever met me. I just happened to be lucky. Um, And the second thing was that when he proposed to me, when he Mm. told me he loved me, he was sitting across the sitting room in my family house and he had never touched me, never kissed me, never hugged me in our lives. Now, I wouldn't honestly say that there's many people get proposed to by somebody. And when he had proposed to me and I was looking at him and he said, do you think you could come a bit closer? (laughs) (laughs) And I went over and I sat on the arm of the chair that he was sitting in. But we had never had any kind of intimacy. And yet when it was, it became known, It was assumed, and the scandal rested on that assumption. And, you know, the odd thing was, the sad thing in many ways, was 
took them three years to let Tom actually leave the priesthood, even though he effectively left immediately. Formally laicized. Reduced to the lay state was the the interesting phrase. Unless, of course, he chose to tell the Catholic Church to go and shag off and just do his own thing. But but did I, I, did Tom retain his faith? I, I presume. I, I, you know, how did he reconcile that himself? That's a great question. Um, Father Peter Lemass, who was one of the heroes of the Catholic Church at yeah. the time, he was Trying part of a riot. He was yeah. marvelous, and he was just his heart was broken by Tom leaving the priesthood, and he kept saying to Tom, "But you're a great priest." And Tom is smiling at him saying, but that doesn't go away, Peter. Yeah. I continue. I will continue to be a priest. You just have to get your definitions right. Tom's definition of priesthood was somebody who was always available, yeah. always ready to help, and who offered an understanding to people who needed to believe in something. Uh, so all of that continued. Um, about six months before he died. And what made me ask him? But I, I said to him, hey, Tom, do you believe in what you used to... Do you believe in Catholicism? Mm. Do you believe in God? And there was a long silence, and then he smiled at me, and he said, Tess, I believe in you, and I believe in Anton. And you know something... That's enough. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. And, and what about you, Terry? Do, do, do you have faith? Do you, no. no. And that's one of the great agonies of being without Tom, because mm. um, I think if you did believe, if you knew there was going to be something in the future, it would make it a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, listen, I can echo that. I can echo that. And I, I don't have faith myself. Um, and of course, there's different layers of that. There's a difference between faith uh, and um, obedience to, to Catholic Church dogma. And look, let's face it, there are a lot of people still wearing legitimate collars at that time. So you, you encountered, amongst others, Father Michael Cleary and other rogues of all stripes. Um, extraordinary how the Catholic Church was... was um, uh, well, let's put it this way. The moment Tom left the Catholic Church, the entire institution fell apart. <laughs> I think it was coincidental rather than causative. But I do remember Tom going on the late late, on Gay mm. Burns late late. But because at the time men were being beaten up um, because they had left the priesthood, there was a, a really harsh mm. kickback. And Tom went on with two other men. And, of course, the two other men were paralysed by being on television and said very little. Mm. But Tom was used to television. And he he did a very good job. But afterwards, I was in the green room of RT, and he came in, and I held out his coat to him, and he pushed aside and went and stood and watched. And I realised that the next guest, the guest following their item, was Father Michael Cleary 
who right. had not been kind to men who had left the priesthood. And Tom said, I'm watching this. And if that so-and-so says anything about us, I'm going right out there on the studio floor and taking them on. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be an epic late, late show. But yeah. in fact... Because Michael Cleary was growing his own profile at the time. He was absolutely. You know, quite enjoying you, being yes. a socialist voice of the people. Yeah. And he was, as we now know, a complete hypocrite. Although Tom actually knew at the time about right. his relationships and stuff. But in fact, Michael Cleary on that night, possibly because he realised how how dangerous it would be to take on mm. Tom. He said that these men were wonderful and courageous and all that nonsense. He was a skilled communicator himself, rogue though he was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, listen, Tom died of, of stomach cancer, wasn't it? Um, no, he uh, suffered stomach cancer and had major surgery, but uh, it was basically the, the follow-up uh, complications mm -hmm. that nearly 10 years later after the surgery. The surgery was actually very funny because the man who did it was a man named Beasley. Mm -hmm. And he subsequently won the lottery twice. Really? This is yes. the Blackrock Clinic fellow. Exactly. Isn't it? And I thought that was his <laughs> basic due. He was a very marvelous character, Beasley. He apparently used to. Uh, drive his wife into uh, Brown Thomas and park their big car outside and put on a chauffeur's cap and let <laughs> on to be her chauffeur and stay parked there. Um, but he did wonderful surgery on Tom and so when he won the lottery twice I thought, yes. This, well, yeah, well it's good to have a lucky general, good to have a lucky general. Uh, but ultimately then Tom did, how long ago is that now Terry? Six years. Wow, wow. Um, and, and of course you know, life, life goes on um, and, you know, life certainly bounces along for you. You're still extremely active. Um, uh, looking back, you have, as I say, this is outside of, of, of the current book, Terry. Maybe we look forward to the next book. Um, but you spent a working lifetime advising um, very senior people in very senior situations um, on communication. Looking around the landscape now, <laughs> um, have you taught them anything? Yeah. If you look at the more recent communications errors that have been made strategically by RTE, for example, and compare them to the cock-ups of the past, uh, do you think we're still making the same cock-ups out there? Oh, yes. And for reasons that never go away, that are inherent to... The human being. When we started, when Bonnie Carr started uh, media training, he he did it because he was presenting a program with politicians, mm. and at the end of the program, he said there was always some politician who would come to and say, "Mind you, you didn't get much out of me now." <laughs> and Bonnie would think, "This is crazy." See, how could anybody misuse airtime yeah. like that by wanting not to communicate? So I think that the desire not to communicate has evaporated a little bit. Mm. But the, the consumer has a bit more nouse as well. To yes. Through some of that nonsense. That we're, we're a bit more literate in it than might have been the case. And you're raising the centrality of everything that me and the communications clinic is, and have done. And your mother back in the day. Which is, 
the listener, the audience, the person out there. Whenever people lose sight of the person that they actually need to mm. communicate with, they're done. And that is the tragedy of the recent controversy within RTE, that the, the, the personal people mm. that Ryan Tuberty needed to communicate with most were the people within RTE who felt that they had taken cuts and maybe he hadn't taken as yeah. big cuts. And if he had solved that problem, he was home and hosed because everybody else felt Ryan is a nice guy and he presents well. Yeah, um, and look, there's there, there's hope for rehabilitation, isn't there? You know, always, um, always, always. Um, Wilson Terry, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I, I'm not sure how long it'll take me to get through the previous twenty nine books <laughs> in your catalogue, but maybe I'll have, I'll have that done by the time you write the next one. Um, Terry, it's been a great pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much. Mutual. So that's Terry Prone. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Let me know if you have any thoughts on the podcasts. Get in touch on connorfaulkman at gmail.com. Do remember that you can access the full Driving Life archive of previous episodes at seniortimes.ie. Thanks again to Doro Mobile Phones, to Expressway Buses and to Travel Department. And we're done. Drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. On will phone poke a newowet, on will knappy no foom nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj, faker na phone in tuck a tall gwin, on show, egg daro, on von klishte is dany, gidi gohan la hai glina, august taskina, ta rod egen, gogachtina, ta nismo olis, egg, daro, dot com.